Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. You may have heard something recently about the FBI's trolling, quote unquote, the Russian embassy here in Washington, blasting electronic messages to its employees with an invitation to, in effect, become American spies or defect. I'll have more on that in a minute. Gene? Foreign volunteers are traveling to the Ukraine conflict, some of them with neo-Nazi sympathies. And some are worried that the war could become a training ground for the far right, like Afghanistan was for jihadis. Right now, the danger is very much scaled down from Afghanistan. But if the conflict drags on, especially if it gets very messy, especially if the Ukrainian state really loses control, then suddenly the risk factor grows and grows. That was David Gartenstein-Ross, CEO of Valens Global, who's leading a project on domestic extremism for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. We'll hear a lot more from him later in the episode. Now back to recent developments in the spy versus spy game as Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to unfold. To get some insider insight on what's going on, I called up a longtime veteran of the CIA's clandestine services division. Lucy Kirk spent a lot of her career focusing on Russia. I'm Lucy Kirk, and I spent a 33-plus year career in the Central Intelligence Agency. I worked in the Directorate of Operations which is the human intelligence side. And I did work, have one assignment outside that uh, in congressional relations, working on Capitol Hill. And you've told me that you were one of only nine women in a training class of 90 at the farm, the CIA's training installation. Yep, that's what I remember, nine women and 90 men. (laughs) And you always wanted to be, as they say in the popular vernacular, a spy, although, To clarify, and a lot of our listeners already know this, you're not really a spy. You're a case officer who goes out and finds people to spy for CIA, right? That's exactly right. Yes, that word spy is misused. But um, it's not just recruitment. It is finding access to individuals who have information or had in the day information on the Soviet Union, inside information. And it wouldn't always be Soviets. It would be people who worked closely with them, for example, and who had access to very private information. So it's not just recruiting the Russians or the Soviets. And on that point, the there, as you probably know, as everybody knows, there weren't that many recruitments. A lot of the so-called assets that we collected were walk-ins. Getting a recruitment is very, very difficult. The combination of access and vulnerability is very difficult and remains so to this day. And, and just to uh, clarify, a walk-in is somebody who just shows up at the embassy or slides a note through the window of a U.S. diplomat's car and says, uh, I'm available. Speaking of finding Russians who are available, The FBI has has come in for some ridicule, I think, for what was reported to be its trolling of the Russian embassy 
in Washington, where where it's sending messages to employees of the Russian embassy in Washington, inviting them to call the FBI, in other words, to defect. What do you think of that? I find it very odd. I really do. I read the material over and over, and I thought, I just find it very odd. First of all, the Russian embassy in Washington is in a neighborhood. It's not on a city street, a big part of the city downtown the way it used to be. And secondly, they're all going to be observed. They're going to be observed. It's not going to be free-floating, wandering about. And third, the whole key to getting people to talk to you is to get people with a combination of access, well, access basically and expertise. You want, you want assets that have direct access to areas of information. Random information is of no importance. And after the at the end of the Cold War, for example, a lot of Russians or Soviets came as walk-ins and they were turned away because there were too many and the need for the information had subsided after 1991. So I find this a very odd, odd uh, behavior on the part of the FBI and, and I've worked closely with them. I respect them a great deal, but this is a, a weird one to me. Yeah, and, and put yourself in the shoes of Russian counterintelligence. It invites Russian counterintelligence to uh, to put someone out there to the FBI and say, hey, I'd like to spy for you guys. Exactly. Uh, in other words, it's a double agent operation, right? Absolutely. It gives it's the temptation to say you send in and you go in as a double agent. You're still your, your Russian self and you go in and play the CIA or the FBI and tell them little bits and bobs of what they want to know. In the meantime, you're collecting information on them. So it's a very weird and if I were the Russians, I would uh, uh, have 50 phone calls to the FBI. Exactly. <laughs> I would clog up the FBI with, with quote-unquote <laughs> volunteers and keep them busy uh, sorting out the real from the fakes. So, or even just create false, you know, false identities. Uh, yeah, you need, the they need to hire you now, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well... Anyway, why do you think the FBI did that before we move along to another subject? You know, I, I have to say, I, I was with some FBI guys last week. I, I, have, I didn't ask that. I have no idea why they would do that. I don't know what the ploy would be on that. Um, the only place that to be of more help is to get word inside of Russia about what's happening in Ukraine. And I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. One in a million, maybe they get one, one special contact out of many. But mm. I really, truly do not know who came up with that idea and why it's considered such a great idea. It seems kind of silly. Mm -hmm. It does. Uh, and I have to wonder why they publicized it, too. Um, although something like that is not going to stay secret for long. Um, I mean, you could say perhaps there'd be one person, maybe the luck of the draw, like pulling the prize out of a jar of jelly beans. I mean, I think <laughs> that that's pretty unlikely, highly mm. improbable. Now, uh, moving this discussion along a, a little bit, um, after uh, various um, uh, events in Soviet history, like its invasion of Czechoslovakia, the mm. CIA and FBI got a, had a windfall of Russian walk-ins, uh, and they were uh, having a hard time sorting them all out. There were so many. Uh, a former CIA station chief in Europe told me that they were turning away idealistic young students and so on who had turned, uh, you know, very anti-Soviet and wanted to spy for the CIA. That's, that's a real challenge. I suppose that, that the, inv the Russian invasion of Ukraine is also having the same result, uh, disaffected Russians volunteering to spy for us. Well, there are two. I mean, where are they coming from? 
Are they in New York City coming, going to the knocking on the door of the FBI? I mean, these what you have to have when you are wanting to spy or going to be hired, recruited, you have to have access. And this is what people miss. Just a random person has no access to speak up. Access to to the inner circles of Russian leadership. Exactly. Access to the decision makers. Like right now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an agent who was close to Putin, who could clandestinely report to us? And of course, I would not know if we did, but I really doubt that we do. It's such a protected layer. And I used to say the same thing with Saddam Hussein years ago. You want access to the decision makers, to the leadership, to the people who are controlling what happens. And that's the key to a good recruitment. Vetting and, and handling it is another is another element, but the access is really important. And that's why this trolling thing seems so odd to me. Uh, and it should be pointed out here that the CIA's mission is to gather strategic intelligence. Um, right, I mean, that, well, that's its main goal. Strategic, would I use that word strategic? I would say perhaps a little, little bit broader than that. Um, any information, well, would you consider it's strategic to know what Putin's character is like. Is that, are you considering that strategic information? Well, I would, but I think that's a pretty uh, vague area. I think that, that it's a little bit broader than strategic. It would be information on plans and intentions, on the character and development and structure of individuals in the leadership, not just Putin, but other people. Who, who are the key players? Who are they? How close are they to him? What are they telling him? That kind of thing. And so it's a little bit broader than strategic. There's some atmospheric information too that can be of value. Mm -hmm. Sure, you want to know what he's eating. <laughs> well, especially especially if you're in the poisons business. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're going to get to to, uh, to your book, The Poisons Factory, okay. in a little bit. Um, you'd want to know if he has control over nuclear weapons uh, and what the chain of command is thinking about uh, the Russian chain of command is thinking about the use of nuclear weapons. Absolutely. That would be, I'd call that solid gold, or that would be a diamond. And I doubt, I sincerely doubt that we have that kind of highly uh, important direct access. There's also other kinds, you know, satellite and all kinds of other, we call them INTs, INTs, human collection, SIGINTs, signals, intelligence. So there are other methods of getting that information, but getting to somebody who's in close to the nuclear thing, that would be like winning the yeah. pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. We did have someone like that uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, yes. Oleg Penkovsky, yes. uh, who told us about uh, the placement of Soviet missiles in Cuba in 1962. Of course, he was eventually caught and executed, yeah. uh, which happens to a lot of spies. Happens to a lot, but he was really, I think, a superhero. And, and it's only coming out in recent years how much he contributed to the whole Cuban Missile Crisis information base. Um, he's a hero to the West. From from your long years studying and, quote, spying on the Soviet Union and Russia, uh, what's your opinion about the news that a number of uh, Russian intelligence officers have been sacked? Well, I was going to say, we did a, did a little talk last week on, on this Russia-Ukraine thing, and I said, here's the item that caught my attention. The Minister of Defense supposedly was detained. Two of the top intelligence people were 
set aside, as it were. Another one was sort of yelled at in a meeting a few months ago. And that gets to me is red flag material. When I see the movement like that, then I say, okay, now we're, we're seeing shifts in leadership and shifts in who has access to Putin. Uh, so I consider that a big story. So your calculation is that is likely true? Yes, that is my calculation. I mean, you're right. They could be playing with us, but I don't think so. No, I think that I say likely true and concerning about Putin himself, Putin's position. Putin, the mystery man, the, he, he really is a man of mystery. In your estimation, will the United States actually pursue regime change as the president suggested a little bit in his speech in Poland? No, no. But what I, I, when I heard that speech, I thought that last sentence, I thought, oh, wow. And I thought, I wonder if anyone else noticed that. <laughs> it was all over the news, but I thought it was my background that made me so aware of it. I, uh, no, I do not think so. This is old covert action. And certainly if that were happening, I just don't think so. Not, not in today's world where we have been so upset about the Russian involvement in the 2016 election and all of that. That doesn't mean there wouldn't be media and such things, but no, I do not believe that we would do it. And it would be an old fashioned covert action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the CIA's history in covert action in Russia uh, with agents early in the Cold War uh, was not very successful. In fact, it was disastrous in places because Stalin and his NKVD knew how to play uh, agents and double them up, right? Yeah. And the, the, yeah, the early history was really a lot of what happened in 19, 1985, the year of the spy that Milt Bearden, Bearden wrote about. Um, there were a number of, we had some very good Russian assets, Soviet assets. But what we didn't know at the time was that we also had a mole within our own organization in the name of Rick Ames and the FBI had um, Hansen. So all those people he betrayed. Mm -hmm. And those are all individual stories, long stories, and most of them tragic in my mind. But they, he got that we had a, a coterie, let's say, of very good assets. And little by little, they got destroyed by this man. As you know, being a friend of Milt Bearden, who should, I should remind listeners, is a senior uh, retired CIA officer whose claim to fame mostly is because he ran the... Uh, operation against the Red Army in Afghanistan, supplying the Mujahideen with weapons, uh, particularly stingers that, that turned the tide against the Soviets in Afghanistan. But he was also a senior officer running operations against the Soviet Union. Um, uh, he has put forth a theory that there's another mole in CIA who's never been caught. Do you have any opinion about that? Well, I think now, I, I don't know what year Milt gave that, but certainly in the 90s, when it started breaking, um, because it wasn't until, 1985 was when, they, when the, they started disappearing. It wasn't until 94 that Rick Ames was spotted. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yes, there's always been a thought that there was another one around somewhere. I don't know in this modern era of the new century, whether there's as much thought of that. But if you're talking about, was there another one then? Um, there were always, there were still some unanswered questions. So it did raise that, that theory. And of course it's 
hard not to be fascinated by that possibility, by the possibility that there was another one that had not been identified. My information is that the investigation, the hunt for the fourth, uh, for another mole has uh -huh. never closed. Good point, because the, the 94 discovery came out of 1985, so. Mm -hmm. Well, we're, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that. Uh, That'll there are be exciting. Some new developments along that line. Now, let's talk about your book, The Poison Factory. That's a oh. great title um, because, as you know, uh, and most of our listeners know, that poison has been the weapon of choice uh, for Putin in assassinating his uh, rivals, former uh, defectors, and so on. So, tell us about the 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 main idea behind your book, The Poison Factory. The main idea is that um, I have a female heroine, surprise, and uh, she gets called back to London. She's in Washington by a defective that she handled there who mysteriously writes her and says, get over here. And basically she goes. He thinks he, that the Russians are out to kill him because a couple of the other defectors, all of whom lived in, in protected new identities in England, died suddenly. So she goes and sure enough, well, yes, there's a poisoner. There are two people. My little character is a, an androgynous female murderess who uh, slashes the throat of the victim. So it looks like a serial killer's on the loose in London, but basically it's the head of the FSB based in London and his assistant, this woman, who are eliminating these people at the, at the request or orders of the Kremlin. So as was the case of any ex-CIA officer writing a novel, uh, readers ask, uh, how much of it is true? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, sometimes I got so involved in it that I forget that it's all fiction. It's all fiction. <laughs> but I did play, what, what I played on was the murder of Litvinenko in 2006, the former KGB officer that was in London who was killed uh, with polonium 210 and 211. And it was a horrible, horrible murder. And, and uh, you know, the Russians didn't pay any price for it. Brits, nobody, they just went back home. One of them's in Congress now, one of the murders. But um, that was a horrible death. And that got my attention. Then I started studying the poisons and looking at different poisons, kind of a weird the area to follow, but it gets very interesting. And I looked for ancient poisons and what they might do. But yeah, it's um, it's the Litvinenko case that got me going on this. Is it hard to leave CIA and having that kind of excitement, uh, intrigue, that life of secrets? You know, I it's only now I think, yes, it is hard. When I retired, it was time. And I, I have to say, I, I do not love bureaucracy you know the layers of bureaucracy are not my thing and i sort of give that trait to my character speaking of real things i so i don't miss that at all what i do miss is what you would call the hallway gossip hallway conversation and the people and you know friends that are just all over the world doing everything and i do miss that i have to i have to admit i miss that speaking of missing things uh the intelligence community is coming in for some criticism now of misjudging the Russian offensive uh, in Ukraine, saying that they expected uh, the Russians to be in Kiev in two or three days and so on, totally uh, uh, overestimated the strength of the Russians, uh, and, and this falls on the heels of, of underestimating the strength of the Taliban in Afghanistan. So 
What's your thoughts as a kind of an outsider now about how U.S. intelligence is doing? Well, again, I'm going to say this word access. If you don't have access to the highest level or the most important decision making inside of something, you're not going to know know the behavior and what's going to happen. I'm not shocked. I actually I like that Biden presented a lot of intelligence. I mean, intelligence information. It was all accurate what he what he presented. Uh, in the public domain before the Ukraine thing. I'm not really shocked that people expected the Russian military would do better than it did. I think that the shock is that it's done so poorly and so logistically unsound. But there too, if you had, if we had assets in senior levels in the military there, maybe we would know more. They could answer that question. Mm-hmm. Did they know? Did they really know how badly they were going to do? Were they not behind it? Did they not get it? With the logistics that far off, it's very weird. So we need to do better. Hmm? So we just need to do better and maybe uh, expend more energy on military intelligence than we have. You know, we have a lot of military intelligence organizations. The DIA has a bunch of them. So mine is not, the CIA is not specifically the military. I mean, it's what what it can be, but the Pentagon and the defense organizations are in the military sector of the intelligence world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Taliban, though, you mentioned the Taliban, where you were speaking of the recent crisis. Well, I was speaking about, you know, uh, underestimating how fast the Taliban could uh, overrun Kabul. Yeah, no, I, I, I was I was stunned by the way that was handled. But one thing that I that that people haven't have just barely met. Zelensky has come out as a superhero state with his country. Remember the president of Afghanistan just fled in 24 hours after yeah. telling the president of the United States that he'd be there. I think that was one of the factors as time, as we look back in time on this, that, that the leadership that was there was not reliable. I mean, I don't blame somebody for not wanting to get captured and killed. I get that. But maybe you shouldn't be running being president of Afghanistan if you have that, if, if you're not more courageous than that. Yeah, it's, I think that's part of the job description. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're going to have to leave it at that, Lucy. It's so great to talk to you, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, uh, the first weekend in May in Tucson, Arizona, where we're both going to be uh, attending and uh, participating in a uh, Valerie Plame Spies, Lies, and Nukes conference. So I know. I'll, I think it's going to be great. I'm going to look forward to seeing you there. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Jeff. That was Lucy Kirk, CIA veteran and budding spy thriller novelist. Her novel, now out in paperback, The Poison Factory, couldn't be more timely given this week's report that at least two senior Ukrainian negotiators and the Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich suffered from poisoning symptoms after participating in peace talks with Russia. Fortunately, at this point, at least no reports that anyone participating in the talks in Turkey has had similar results, but stay tuned, I guess. Indeed. Uh, We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk some about neo-Nazis and what they might be up to in Ukraine. A reminder to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and also subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. We'll be back in just a moment. Lessons learned on the battlefields of Afghanistan were carried by some jihadis back to their home countries. 
helping their violence and ideology to metastasize. Today, foreign volunteers are flowing into Ukraine. Although most have completely honorable intentions, among them are some white supremacists, neo-Nazis, who are getting military training, combat experience, and equipment. They are potentially networking and recruiting. David Gartenstein-Ross leads a project on domestic extremism for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He's also CEO of Valence Global. I asked him if the war in Ukraine is a galvanizing event for neo-Nazis. There are two different answers to that question. The first one is from the lens of Russian propaganda and Putin's pledge to denazify Ukraine when he went in. Uh, people have, commentators have justifiably put their finger on the fact that Putin's description of Ukraine is an exaggeration. Um, it is not an extremist dominated conflict on the side against the Russian invasion. That being said, Absolutely. People should be concerned about the way Ukraine could be a potential mobilizing force at the way that neo-Nazi and other white supremacist groups are mobilizing around the conflict, especially if the conflict draws on for an extended period. Um, there's a danger that those various ways that these groups are looking at the conflict to go there and find battlefield experience um, as a uh, means to uh, rally people to the same part of the world, uh, sort of um, Afghanistan from the 1980s, but put into uh, Eastern Europe in the 2020s. Like, these are all things that are a concern that we should absolutely be looking at and talking about. Let's talk about Ukraine's complicated legacy when it comes to Nazism. Let's go back to World War II. Can you summarize in brief what happened? You had a Nazi occupation of Ukraine uh, with a number of um, people, um, well over 1.5 million from minority groups, um, including um, a very large Jewish population who were slaughtered. You had Ukrainians on both sides of this. Some fought against the Nazi occupation, others assisted it and assisted the Nazi slaughter. And those fault lines continue to be uh, felt today in Ukraine. One thing that gave um, some power uh, to the far right in, in Ukraine is recent events. Um, you know, going all the way back to um, you know the the um, ouster of the the pro-Russian government and the way that you had far right factions, including those affiliated with the Azov movement, on the ground as sort of the muscle to help to enforce that. And then you had um, the Russian occupation of Crimea with, again, figures on the far right, far right linked militias playing an, an important role in fighting Russia on the front lines. Now, despite all of that, when you ended up with the Azov movement um, and its political wing um, running um, in recent Ukrainian elections, they weren't able to... and and. Uh, they weren't able to take a single legislative seat. So let me take you back just a moment and explain to those who don't know what Azov is. Uh, absolutely. So um, Azov is a group uh, founded in 2014, and it's often um, not understood well because it's more than a single thing. 
Um, so the best known part of Azov is often called the Azov Battalion, but its name is actually the Azov Regiment. And that's an important distinction. Um, this was a uh, initially a militia that um, fought against the Russians during as, as Russia came in to occupy the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, and um, it got uh, absorbed into the Ukrainian National Guard. So it's now under state control. Um, you also have a political party that's associated with Azov. It's called the National Corps. You also have um, a, a militia that's associated with it, as well as uh, something which is referred to as the Azov movement. The Azov movement is a variety of initiatives, a variety of projects, um, and people who are part of the Azov movement, which tends to be a far-right movement, will refer to these as though they're a unified whole. That's not entirely accurate, given the state absorption of the Azov reg regiment, but this is a very powerful symbol. And if you look at uh, neo-Nazi or white supremacist uh, rhetoric and propaganda about the conflict in Ukraine for those who are anti-Russia, Azov often plays an outsized role in their interpretation of the conflict. Uh, how big a movement is this? Do you have any sense within Ukraine? It's a large movement. Um, we're talking a, a movement where if you look not just at core, but also supporters, it's over, it's, it's well over 10,000. But also to contextualize it again, uh, I mentioned um, recent parliamentary elections in Ukraine. The National Corps, which is the political wing of the Azov movement, um, it, it, it banded with other far-right and extreme-right groups to run uh, for the parliament, and they were completely unsuccessful. So to contextualize, it's a large movement, and you have an unusual relationship between the state and the movement. Ukraine is the only European country in which you have um, a regiment that is this extreme, that is supported by the state to this degree. At the same time, uh, it also is not getting any political traction within the country. And here, I, I wanna make a very quick sidebar because Azov has been such a topic of, of um, discussion. So I, I wanna point out number one, that not everybody who's part of Azov is a Nazi or extreme right, especially after its absorption. You'll have members who don't share that ideological outlook. Um, that's one of the advantages of Ukraine's absorption of the Azov regiment. And a second thing I'll point out is Ukraine, as we can see, is existentially threatened. It is a country that is literally fighting for its survival. And so while one may criticize you know, the Azov movement's uh, presence in Ukraine and, and particularly the Azov regiment, I think we can all also understand why a country facing this degree of threat is looking to bolster fighters who they think can be useful, even despite their uh, noxious ideology. Despite the existence of Azov, Ukraine has a Jewish president and had a Jewish prime minister for a time. What does that tell you? The fact that Zelensky is Jewish, the fact that you have this far-right uh, leaning regiment within the Ukrainian National Guard speaks to a lot of different things. Perhaps it speaks best to the fact 
that times of existential crisis often produce very strange bedfellows on the same and also opposite sides of a conflict. So Vladimir Putin has claimed that this war is about the denazification of Ukraine, as you mentioned, but Russia also has a history, a very current history with neo-Nazism, yes? The Russian imperial movement, um, which has significant ties to the Russian state, though it's not an arm of the Russian state, is the only white supremacist group that right now is designated um, a especially designated global terrorist by the US Department of State. Um, you've had Russian support for a variety of you know, extreme right movements, including those with ties to Nazism. Is Putin perceived as a hero by some on the right? Absolutely. Uh, this has been very fractious on the right. Uh, generally speaking, most extreme right groups have been pro-Ukraine rather than pro-Russia during this conflict. You have others who've been pro-Russia. You have, uh, if, you, if for those of us who follow um, neo-Nazi and other extreme right chatter, you've had these wrenching debates within the movement and some who try to profess neutrality. There was a meme going around, no more brother wars, indicating that white Europeans should not be killing other white Europeans. But you know, the, this conflict is a very, very fractious one for uh, groups on the extreme right, including and especially those who are white supremacist or white supremacist leaning. Is that disunity, that disagreement, from your perspective, a good thing? It's not clear. Um, if you go back to the Syria conflict, another conflict that was extremely important for extremist movements, for militant movements, you had significant disunity between two of the major jihadist players, between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. That disunity did not make the rest of the world any safer. So, you know, in theory, disunity among militants is a good thing. In practice, it can be very hard to exploit. And it's sometimes, for a variety of reasons, can create even greater dangers. What do you mean? Well, it can create, for example, outbidding, where different militant groups to prove their bona fides try to engage in, um, this is the terrorism context, uh, try to engage in more spectacular attacks to show that they're bigger and badder than the others. Um, that's one thing that it can produce. Now, generally speaking for this particular movement, for neo-Nazis, for white supremacists, disunity has actually tended to be a good thing over time. If you look at the history, for example, of neo-Nazi groups in the United States, they have not been able to unify. They are plagued by infighting. And that's made them far less powerful, uh, far less of a day-to-day -day force than they otherwise might be. Given how nascent the conflict in Ukraine is right now, given how many unknowns there are, given how outside far-right movements are positioning themselves, um, I think that there is a range of possibilities to consider. Do we know how many foreign fighters are going into Ukraine uh, to fight for either Ukraine or Russia? I would distinguish them 
from, from foreign fighters. I would actually refer to those going to Ukraine right now, for the most part, as foreign volunteers. The difference is that foreign fighters will go to a conflict and they'll join militias or other non-state groups. Uh, during Russia's incursion into Eastern U Ukraine in 2014, you had a, a genuine foreign fighter mobilization going over to Ukraine. People who weren't part of any sort of state militia um, and instead were, were part of private groups. Since then, there's been a significant effort on Ukraine's part to take these foreign volunteers and put them at least nominally into a state structure. The numbers aren't clear. Um, you know, uh, it certainly is in the thousands when you, when you come when you look at the question of how many people are going through the process of trying to join up with the foreign legion of the Ukrainian territorial defense. Um, so there's an entire procedure that one needs to go through to join the foreign legion. And do we know if when they're going through that procedure, there's any screening to figure out if they have far right sympathies? There's definitely a screening process. How many people is it screening out? How stringent is it? How high are they making the standards? We don't have the answers to that. I'm certain that they're not being that stringent, right? Someone who, let's say someone who has clear far-right sympathies, who's, uh, say, a combat veteran of whatever military, um, that person would probably be taken, right? That, that's the kind of existential threat that Ukraine feels, that they probably would rather have that person on the battlefield, I'm guessing. Though, again, Ukraine has been coy about this point. And so it's good to read in some uncertainty to my statement, because it's not like we have a definitive answer. I'd like to talk about the long-term potential impacts of these groups, getting battle experience, getting training, um, networking, perhaps yes. growing in size while they're fighting in this conflict. How could this play out first for Ukraine? Will they have more influence in the end potentially? Almost certainly. Um, if you look at 2014, um, it, let, let's, say this about the Azov fighters, they're courageous fighters. Um, they're pretty effective on the battlefield. They showed that in 2014. Um, we could see them get rejected at the ballot box in 2019, but the fact that the Ukrainian state, which is a relatively weak state, certainly very weak compared to Russia, um, may see a need for them in times of crisis, that's something that certainly will bolster their standing in society. How does it play out potentially for Western Europe and the US when these people who are fighting now in Ukraine go home? Mm -hmm. For most people fighting in Ukraine, um, it will play out in no way whatsoever. But the neo-Nazis? For neo-Nazis, um, the analogy is often made um, to Afghanistan in the 1980s uh, and what that did for the jihadist movement. I think that right now that is a hyperbolic comparison, though, you know, as one of the few historical examples that we have, I think it's not, it's not unreasonable to think 
about it. Like, and the reason I, I say it's, it's hyperbolic, but also not unreasonable to think about is you don't have the same magnitude of um, mobilization of foreigners to this battlefield yet. And secondly, you have um, an absorption uh, into the Ukrainian state for now and not, in, not into uh, some state groups. But what we found in Afghanistan in the 1980s was that um, you know, the jihadist movement had been somewhat moribund at that time. It was you know, isolated, outgunned by the state, and um, suddenly you got tens of thousands of Arab foreign fighters going to the conflict who were able to gain battlefield experience and forge relationships. And there is a danger that that will occur in Ukraine. Right now, the danger is very much scaled down from Afghanistan. But if the conflict drags on, um, especially if it gets very messy, especially if the Ukrainian state really loses control, then suddenly the risk factor grows and grows. Right now, this looks very force on force. But if it looks more like an insurgency than force on force fighting, then suddenly the risk factor with respect to neo-Nazis being a part of the conflict significantly increases. So these risk factors they very much bear watching. That was David Gartenstein-Ross, CEO of Valens Global, leader of a project on domestic extremism for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism at The Hague. Jeff? My main takeaways from that fascinating interview, Gene, are that one, of course, war makes for very strange bedfellows. And... Uh, that Ukraine is in an existential crisis and, and that although they are screening foreign fighters who want to come and help out uh, fight against the Russians, they're being a little bit coy about that screening and they're going to take just about anybody they can unless somebody, I guess, shows up in a white sheet and volunteers to fight in Ukraine. Another thing that I took away from that interview is that there are significant numbers of these neo-Nazis fighting, in particular in that so-called Azov Battalion, but that uh, the neo-Nazis have virtually no political influence in Ukraine. Anyway, this is something we're going to be watching over time as Ukraine faces its uh, midnight hour against the Russians, and it, it's troubling. You know, another interesting point he made to me is that there are already adherents of far-right ideologies in militaries all around the world, including our own. Uh, indeed, as uh, Spy Talk followers know, I've written recently two stories on the infiltration of right-wing extremist hate speech and pro-insurrection sentiment into classified chat rooms in the intelligence community. You can find that over on the Spy Talk newsletter site. A perfect reminder that you should subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Also, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. A great one, please. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Gene Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for sticking with us today. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.